1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We will be studying verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2 this evening. First John chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is a message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your abounding love for us, a love that never diminishes Love that never loses its strength or loses its um, effectiveness in our life. We're grateful for your infinite love towards us that you are willing to send, send your son to die for our sins. Lord, we ask you to be with us this evening as we study your word and give us clarity and insight so that we would be able to live faithfully, so that you will be honored in all the things that we say, all the things that we do, even all of our thoughts would be pleasing to you, Lord. We thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen. I am a slight conspiracy theorist. I think I shared that with some of you before. And by that, I mean I kind of challenge everything that I see in the world. Uh, Every time I see an ad uh, uh, that's trying to sell me something, I don't necessarily look at the ad itself, but I'm I'm trying to think, what is it trying to make me not only do, but how does it sort of try to make me think? One observation I made in the world is that there's constantly people, these billboards and ads and videos, they're always trying to get you to think, to have this consumeristic mentality. And this is usually true in countries that are particularly wealthy. Uh, There are often days and ads that people try to point to as like a shopping spree or or a day where you can buy all these things so that your life can be uh, perfect or it could be better if you make these certain transactions. In China, there's a day called Singles Day, and this which all the single people in the world decide just to shop, uh, just to uh, fill the void that they don't have in their marriages or in their dating life. And in America, we have the same thing, too. We call it Black Friday. And both of these things share something in common, is that, is that you, they want you to buy as many things as possible. And what ends up happening over time is that your life begins to have this consumeristic mentality. Everything becomes some sort of transaction between what you need to buy or what you need to go to, what you need to do to receive something that is better than what you have in the moment. It is normal for people outside the church church to think this way because that's how the world works. You know, they, they don't have much to look forward to except for the things that they can buy. 
But we in the church must not have this type of mentality. And unfortunately, that is one of these side effects. We are bombarded with all of these different ads and different uh, things that just try to lure our attention and get our gaze to focus on the world that we view life as simple transactions. We see our connections with God not as a communion with him or fellowship with him, but rather this one-time transaction in the past that has no lasting impact in the present. Or if it does have any lasting impact, it is a short one, just like buying a material thing. You, get, you purchase it, you get excited for a while, then eventually you get bored of it. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's how we think of the church. That's how we think of Christ. This, this consumeristic mentality undercuts our view of Christ as a whole because we see our relationship as a mere transaction. When people ask, how, how did you come to a saving faith? Sometimes people will just say, well, I said a prayer. Um, or we ask people uh, to enter the water baptism. Why? How do you know if you're saved? They'll say, well, I, I did this one thing as a kid. They speak of their relationship with Christ as a mere transaction. No, no, although that is true, there is an aspect of that, of our relationship with Christ and our saving, and the moment we're saved, that there is a transaction that, that takes place. We confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and he purchases us, he ransoms us from the bondage of sin so we could be made right with God. But it's more than that. It is way more than simply a transaction. Past week, uh, my wife and I were looking through all of these photo albums uh, of my father-in-law and all these different, uh, you know, just kind of like story of his life from the, from the time he was in Hong Kong all the way here and then uh, so recently. And, and we were asking my mother-in-law, he were, tell us about your marriage. Were, tell us about what, what, what this picture is about. And she had all of these different stories that were funny and, uh, and sad at times, but you know, it just showed us that through all these photos that the relationship was, was full of memories, full of joyous memories. And if you ask any married couple here, if you ask myself, if you ask Bill and Kathy, if you ask uh, Brian and Laura, Steve and Becca, whoever, if you ask any marriage person, married people, married couple in this church, I highly doubt that they would say, that our marriage is just a mere transaction. That one point in our life, we just said, I do, and that's it. You know, there's, there's, there's bound to be memories. There's bound to be things that they, they these sweet moments, all these different things that add up to, to marriage. But if you only see someone, that if you ask them, hey, can you tell me about your marriage? And all they could say is, oh, at one point in the past, I said, I do, and that's our marriage. If that's all that they can describe about their marriage, then it's evident that this, their relationship is hollow, and that there really isn't much in their relationship. So it is with our walk with Christ. If the only memory you have of Jesus is that you acknowledge him as a savior at one point, and that, and that is all that there is, there is a shallow and hollow understanding of your relationship with Christ. The gospel is more than just a transaction. There are theological realities that we may not even be aware of in the early days of our Christian life, but should be the moment we grow in our knowledge of Christ. We must know that within the gospel means that we are justified. The, ju the doctrine of justification means that we are now legally standing before the Lord cleared. We're, we're righteous. Because of what Christ has done, he has declared us justified. We're no longer held accountable for our sin because of what he has done legally on our behalf. He not, we are now declared righteous because of what Christ has done. We're no longer clothed in our sin, but now we are clothed in his righteousness. 
we also uh, have the mind of Christ in that we think about the things of Christ. The more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more discernment we have, the more we start dwelling on things that are pleasing to the Lord. You know, the doctrine of sanctification in that the moment we're saved, we become slowly more and more like our Savior. Then we no longer desire the life that we've had before, but we desire the things that are pleasing to him, that our life, our actions, and our thoughts are slowly more and more like Jesus. We experience aspects of the doctrines of glorification in that we have a new life. We have this eternal life. The moment we become saved, we have eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin the moment after we die. It begins the moment we place our faith in him. And there are many more doctrines that are tied to the gospel that we should think about that, that, that will make us have a higher view of who Jesus Christ is. Not only other doctrinal realities, but, there are, but your relationship with Christ also is filled with sweet memories of communion with the Lord, with victories over, uh, over, victories over sin, thankfulness for, for God who provided so much for you, times where the Lord provided for you physically, emotionally, or, or any other need. Times where he gave you courage to share the gospel. Times that you see his invisible hand act in your life so that you can be more and more like Christ. Times that, he, that you were comforted by the Lord in, in times of trial. Times that he's shown you great peace in light of dark times. All the times we gave you strength when you were weak. All the things that God, Christ has done in your life. You need to cherish these memories. Because that's the relationship we have with the Lord. The more we dwell on these things, the more we're attuned to how the Lord working our life, the more we'll love him. The relationship that we have with God is that of love. The relationship that he has towards us is this abounding love. If you have a true, rich, and deep relationship with this God, then your walk with the Lord will be a vibrant one. This is what it means to have fellowship with God. There's more in your life in Christ than just a simple transaction. You build upon the relationship you have with him the moment you come to saving faith. You read God's word, and each time you feed on the word of God, you become a greater lover of God, which will impact your daily walk with him. Both the doctrinals and the doctrinal implications and the experiences that you have in your walk with Christ, those make you love him more and more the more mature you become in the faith. Some of the people's relationship with God here are hollow and shallow because it's just a cover. It's just like an empty shell. There's no real affection or desire to love the Lord, which makes perfect sense in the way that they view life. The point of this book, the point of 1 John, is to give us assurance, but at the same time, it's supposed to challenge us. It gives us assurance on how, how do we know we're genuinely saved. This book, if you read through it, gives us a test to see if you truly belong to Jesus Christ. For some, you need, a test of, you need to test your assurance because you're too comfortable in the church. You're, too, you're overly confident in what you do in the church, so you're the one that needs to be challenged. While others, you need to be comforted knowing that you are indeed walking faithfully with the Lord. In both cases, the solution is to truly know Jesus Christ and to love him. Notice in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. John's writing in this, in this book is not strictly what to do, but also what to think, which then changes what we love. This book is deeply practical as well as theological. 
the message that John heard is from Christ. In the New Testament, especially in John's gospel, we see multiple times where Christ described himself as light. John 1.4 tells us that in the beginning, the, uh, the, that there was the word, and the word was light. And over and over again, Christ calls himself as light into the world. But this is not just some New Testament thing. This goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The light that it describes, describes the holiness of God. It, describes, it, it's, it highlights that God is a holy God. He's also lighting that he reveals himself. In a, light, in a place where it's filled with darkness, he, he shows himself. He displays himself. Light is often described as also moral purity. He is the standard of morality. God doesn't float in the air and, and look at something and say, okay, this is what I need to be. He is the standard of holiness. Everything that we talk about in terms of holiness this is the character of God. All of these attributes are descriptions of who God is. All the times we see about light, it's, it's a tribute to God, and it's also a tribute to Jesus Christ. In our world where we seek to try to be real and authentic, the realest and most authentic picture that we will ever get about ourselves actually revealed in Scripture. It has been said that man, has, man can read many books, but only the Scriptures can read the man. Christianity is the only religion by emphasizing and highlighting that God is light means that Christian must take sin seriously and then offer a satisfactory moral solution to the problem of sin. The way Christians have true fellowship with, one, with the one true God who described as light is not to make light of sin or to deny the reality of sin, but to confess it and be thankful for God's provision for washing us of our sin. You notice this is in him. There, there is no darkness. This contrast between God being light and contrasting darkness expressed strongly as possible. The point John is trying to make that anyone that claims that fellowship and are walking in him would be like God in, the, in their separation from darkness. John's main emphasis here in the context of this book is to highlight that God's light in terms of ethical terms. God is light, which is to say that he is a holy God. He is a good God. And in him there is no darkness. And evil can never reside with or in God. So if God's word is truly indwelling in you, if you claim to be a Christian, then there should be these evidence in your life. If you want to test your salvation to see if, there, if there, that you have assurance, there must be these three realities that, out, that come from an outflow of the love you have for the Lord. If you want to test to see if God is truly dwelling in your heart, you will see these char three characteristics in your life. Our first point this evening is, that you, is walking in the light in Christ, that you will be someone that's walking in the light. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Remember the context here. There were these group of people called the Gnostics. These are people who claimed that, uh, that, through, that through their life you can have you can, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you can live a life of sin. They thought that a person claimed to be in light, but yet walk in complete darkness. Yet verse 6 here that since God is light, there is no darkness in light. There is no Christian that can claim that he is living in full fellowship with God if they're walking in sin. There must be a contrast between what you were and what you are. 
You and I were once walking in darkness, but after our conversion, we must now be walking in the light. Some of you know the, <laughs> the professional wrestler Andre the Giant. Right, you guys know who he is. He's almost like a mythical figure. He was known as the eighth wonder of the world because of how huge he was. Uh, one of the things that happened to him when he was 14, he, was a, he used to be a farmer in France, and, and when he was 14, he decided to just leave the farm and go and start a career out in France somewhere, um, and then, like another in Paris. He wanted to go to Paris to, to start a new life. So he's been a farm, he's been a farm boy for 14 years, but he wanted to try something new. So at 14, he went, and he, he left the farm and decided to try out for rugby. He thought he wanted, like, okay, yeah, I, I seem like I'm an imposing figure. I maybe do, do some sports. But someone looked at him and said, no, you should be a professional wrestler. And he thought, okay, I'll try that. And he started, he, he's called, he didn't call himself Andre Giant, called him some other French name, Andre the something. We just called him the wrestler. And uh, he had a pretty good career. He was this, uh, this national phenomenon, and people were watching him from all over France as this huge wrestler that was, like, dominating everyone. Four years later, he went back to his farm to see, to see his family. He came up in a Rolls Royce, and he walked up to his front door, and his parents were shocked. They were surprised that the wrestler here is visiting them. And Andre with the giant was like surprised, like, I'm your son. And they're like, oh, oh, you're the, you're, no, wait. And they were like shocked to realize that the wrestler that they've been watching for all these years is actually their own son. His life was so radically different. They had no idea that their wrestling hero was, was the same farm boy that they raised. This is how different Andre the Giant's life became. Now, I want to use this, this illustration to think about your own life. If someone was to ask you, if someone was to look at your life and contrast it to before, would it be recognizable? Are you radically different from the way that you were? The way that you spend your time is it different than it was before you came to know Christ? The way that you spend your money, is it different than the way that you did before you came to saving faith? The way that you talk, does it sound different? And your aspirations and desires, are they different than they were before you were saved? Your new life compared to your old life should be unrecognizable. It should be drastically and ruthlessly different. If not, then there are chances that your affections are in the wrong place. You're currently walking in darkness. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Remember what we said about light, how it is a sign of moral purity and truth and righteousness that reflect uh, God and how it should be in these descriptions should describe us as well. You've heard the phrase, birds of the same feather flock together. Well, so it is with the Christian. If we are truly walking with Christ, if we're close with Christ in our walk, then we should look like our Savior. Walking in the life does not mean moral perfection, but it does define who you are. You're defined by your faithfulness and obedience. But that does not mean that you will be perfect. One evidence that you are alive in the gospel is where you were once is different from where you are now. Christians need to be walking in and with Christ. Walking in Christ requires believers to repent and turn from sin, which is not easy because sin is oftentimes too alluring to give up. But sin, as 
pleasurable as it is for that moment, always leads to pain. C.S. Lewis describes them this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. This process of surrender, this movement, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is sometimes much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. And I love this quote because that's exactly what it means to put off sin in our life. It's, it's requiring to, to take off our old self, and that is not easy at times for us. But that is something that we are called to do. I wonder if for some of you, sanctification is too much for you because it requires you to truly die to your old self, and you don't really want to do that. Being alive in Christ means that we must be people who are always cutting away and removing our old self because we love Christ more than our, than our old self. Notice the phrase one another. There's a debate on who this one another is referring to. Is it a reference to God or with other Christians? I think based on the context of the verse, it would seem to indicate fellowship with Christ. If you have true fellowship with Christ, if you claim to have closeness with God, but then defy God's word, you live contrary to his character, you're living a lie. But don't miss the key point of being a Christian. There's a temptation for us to think that once we have this Bible knowledge that we need to just go out, that we just need to go and do this thing, that work out your salvation. No, the point of this letter and the scripture as a whole is not simply give you instructions on how you need to conduct yourself to look like a Christian, but give you a picture of Christ, a picture of God, so that your affections will change. And when that affection changes, that's how your actions will change. God isn't impressed with what you know or what you do for him. He wants your devotion. He wants your love. He wants your heart. It is from that outflow of the love that is informed by Scripture that is what, could, that is what would cause you to act. In Matthew 7, uh, when, Christ, when there's going to be people, you know, we are familiar with this, this passage when people die, and Christ said there would be many in those days that said, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? In a modern term, it would be like, God, didn't I act the way that I'm supposed to act? Didn't I do all the external things that make others in myself think that I am a Christian? And the Lord will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. See, it's a relationship. If you have a true relationship with Christ, then you will do those things. You'll do things that are pleasing to him. But if you just do those things outwardly, thinking that you can be a right person, you are wrong. The reality is that there will be people who can know and do the right thing without loving the right person. So is this you? Are you a person that can lie with your actions? Are you trying to dilute your conscience and deceive others with your life or is your walk a genuine walk with the Lord true salvation begins with a love of Christ and the evidence of that love is through your actions but you can't work out your life and get to heaven without any love for Christ there are those that can do all of these false evidence externally but have no new life internally 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us like tells us that we need to be moved by the love of Christ, that the love of Christ is supposed to control us. You need to love God, and that love of God and love for God will drive you to live obediently. Bring back to the context of this book, you realize that John is writing to a group of Christians that are watching people around them living out in darkness. These are people that claim to be Christians, and John is trying to tell them that the reason why they're living this way is because they're following a false Christ. 
these true Christians are in doubt because they're, they're struggling. They see all of these people around them falling into sin. And John is trying to remind them that although the Gnostics, these false teachers claim to be walking in light, they are really walking in darkness. Whereas these faithful few in the church, these are the ones that are faithful because they are walking in the light. They're not, John isn't attacking them. He's attacking those that are claimed to be in the church but really living a secret life. And sometimes their secret life isn't so secret. It's just, it's just blatantly open in the context of the church. And for some of you, you may be in church and you even wonder, you may even wonder if the person next to you in the church, are they truly living a faithful life? And this is reality. In a church this size with this type of teaching, not everyone in the church lives a life that's actually in harmony with the scriptures. But, the, but what you need to do is not so much focus on what other people need to do. You need to check your own heart. You need to see, are you one of those people? You don't need to focus on other people and be tempted to even follow their lifestyle. But rather, you need to focus your affections on Jesus Christ and live like him. You need to be walking in the light, even if others in the church who claim to be in the light are walking in darkness. So which one are you? Are you living in darkness while in the midst of a church context? Or are you truly living in the light because you love Jesus Christ? If you walk in the light the way Jesus is in the light, your life must be progressively more and more like Jesus. But if you claim to be in the light but are walking in darkness, you need to check your own heart to see if your heart is filled with darkness. If God's word is truly dwelling, indwelling in you, then you must first be walking in Christ. Not only that, but secondly, you must be asking for forgiveness. Our second point is asking for forgiveness in Christ. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, our, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In Christ, in, in Christ's word, if Christ's word is truly indwelling in your life, then you must be a person that is constantly seeking to repent of your sins to the Lord, and that should be a norm of your life. We have to have a willingness to confess our sins to the Lord. We ask God for forgiveness because, uh, because our sin still, lingering, still lingers in our own life. I mean, when we ask for forgiveness, it isn't to say that we need to be re-saved or that Christ needs to die again for our sins. No, when we ask God, when we confess our sins to him, we're acknowledging that God is holy and we are not, that we have failed his moral standards. We're, we have this self-realization that all of our sin is paid for by Christ in the past. Remember again, the context, these false teachers are people who claim that they are perfect regardless of how their lifestyle is. There's some sort of sinless perfection in their life. Even though they're living in darkness, they claim that they are still perfect. Yet in verse 8, we see there are people who claim that they have no sin. They're deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. A person may be conscious or aware of all their sins they commit, but we're not all free from it. There's no end of the reality of sin in this life. Unbelievers are often people who do not acknowledge or, 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 or are unwilling to admit sin the way the Bible describes it. The Bible is clear about how depraved we truly are. I've mentioned this when we were going through the book of Judges. We have these things called sin of commission and sin of, sins of omission. 
sins of commission or things that we do, the things that are wrong. We, we, we choose to sin. Omission are things that not only that we choose not to do the things that are wrong, but we also choose not to do the right things. You know, we're called to, to live obediently. We're called to return a blessing when people curse us. When we don't respond in a rightful way, that's also sin. Instead of harboring bitterness or resentment and anger towards other people that hurt us, we need to look to Christ and see how much we have been forgiven through the work of Christ. God returned blessing to us when we offended him, and we need to do that for others who offend us. And when we fail to do that, we call that the sin of omissions. We don't return evil for evil, but we turn evil for good. Some things that, as long as we just ignore it, then that's okay. If someone hurts, we ignore it. No, that isn't right either because we're called to love on that person. We're called to love our enemies. We need to actively pursue them in love. You need to treat people better than they deserve because God treated you better than you deserve. We're called to be people that are not, not only flee from the wrong thing, but to pursue the right thing as well. Verse 9 it says here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. John reminds us of the grace that we have in Christ. He describes to us that if we sin, we can confess it to the Lord and he will forgive us. The word confess here is, again, is, is in humbly admitting that you are wrong, that you've offended someone. Anytime we sin and when we confess, we acknowledge that God is right and we are wrong. John here gives us comfort. He knows that we're going to fall into sin. And we, will, we can still be purified and even sanctified by our confession so that we can continue to have fellowship with God. This, turn, this in turn causes our relationship with one another to have fellowship again. If you claim to be a believer, you need to be someone that's confessing your sins to the Lord, especially when you fall into sin. That's all of us, right? We understand all of us still have residual sin in this corrupted body. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Scripture describes the unfortunate reality of indwelling sin in the life of a Christian. We, we, we see this in the in life of Paul in Romans 7. He, he does the things that he does not want to do. In Philippians 3.12, he says that he hasn't obtained it yet, but he's doing all that he can to, to strive after a life of righteousness. Christians will sin after salvation. We must not deny the reality and horrors of sin. By making such claim that we have no sin, we say that God is a liar. Confessing our sins means that we acknowledge the holiness of of God. So for anyone to say that they have no sin, that must mean whether they are aware of it or not that God is wrong. That's what they're saying when they say they have no sin. When you hear non-Christians say that, they're saying that God is wrong. And when a Christian says that, that means that the, the word is not indwelling in them. All believers must agree with God regarding their own sin. and Their need to confess it and then they, they will receive the restored fellowship that is promised. To say that there is no sin, a person to, deprives themselves of the opportunity to walk closely with the Lord. This is why a Christian, even though they stand judicially perfect and righteous before God, still needs to confess their sins. John said that if we do not have sin, then the word is not dwelling in us. You ask yourself, when was the last time you asked God for forgiveness? Think about your la this past week. How many times have you sinned against God that you just brushed under the rug? You just think to yourself, well, I don't need to confess. Christ paid it all already. 
No, we need to confess our sins because a healthy relationship tends to ask for forgiveness because it's needed, because it is the most sensitive and loving thing to do. If it is considered insensitive and caring and uncaring for the forgiveness and transgressions or mistakes and sin against someone else, how much more it is with God. If someone in your life that you love in an earthly sense sins against you and you just and they don't ask for forgiveness, that might bother you a little bit. So how much more when it comes to the Lord? The Lord is not the one that moves. We are. We're, when we sin, we, we're drawn away from the Lord. But when we confess our sins, we go back to him. We, we, we acknowledge our wrong and we begin to fellowship with him again. We've reconciled and then we can be close with God. Sin moves us away. It breaks the fellowship between us and God just as it does our earthly relationship. So we confess our sins so that we can be close with our God. Proverbs 28, 13. It reads, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. When was the last time you find yourself confessing your sins to the Lord? Perhaps one reason why your fellowship or your devotional Bible reading or your, any of your spiritual discipline is dry is because you have all these lingering sin in your life. and You choose not to let them go. There's a reason why Christ taught his disciples that they need to confess and ask God for forgiveness. In the sinner's prayer, there's a part of it where they're, they're confessing their sin. Not because we, for judicial reasons, but, because, but for fellowship reasons. Not only is the person who has God's word truly indwelling in them, walking in the light or confessing their sins, lastly, they will be dwelling on the advocate. Our last point, dwelling on the advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John speaks to the people in the church as little children. This is a phrase of endearment. This is modeled after Jesus. Jesus calls his disciples children in John 13, verse 33. John isn't saying this in terms of a condescending way or that he is somehow perfect, um, but he's saying that he is, as a mature, older believer, he has his affection for them, just like the, just like the way Christ has had for them when he was dwelling with them. John came, to know, John came to be known for his great love for Jesus as well as others that followed Christ as well. John uses this phrase six times in this letter, and John has this fond affection for the church. John hopes that we will walk in light as Christ is in light and not in darkness. John writes this letter with, a, with this purpose, that we do not live a pattern of sin. Christians are free from the bondage of sin, but we are not free to indulge or commit more sin. We are free from sin, not to continue to live in sin. The natural trajectory of walking and moving towards Christ-likeness must be that our lives are progressively more and more like our Savior. I've said this multiple times. This is what we call the doctrine of sanctification. When we mature in our knowledge and love for God, which makes us more mature, it will change our conduct as well. We will be more and more like our Savior. Slowly over time, our heart attitudes and our actions will align with our Savior. Our lives must be marked by a vigorous zeal to combat sin in our lives. 
We should never be making any excuses of sin because all of our excuses of sin is what killed our Savior. The value of our Savior is evident in how we respond in our lives. You can tell how much value a person is based on how they respond to things. Like, for example, if a, if a married couple were having an argument and, the, and one of the spouses decided to throw the ring at them and walks out, that's a gesture. It's supposed to show you that, uh, that in their heart they're so upset at this person that they want to leave the covenant relationship. In the same way, every time that we sin, we are doing the same thing. We're casting the, uh, we're casting the rings in, in to an extent. We're saying that this other thing is more valuable than your relationship with Christ. So what is your reaction to sin? The, exhort- the exhortation to walk in light is to encourage us not to be in sin. But unfortunately, there will be moments in our life where we will fall into sin. However, when we fall, there is comfort in knowing that there is an advocate, that we have this advocate in Christ. Our sins do not disqualify us from heaven. If we are truly saved, he will not let us go. Jesus Christ is our advocate. That means that he stands up and makes a case on our behalf. This word can be translated as helper or someone that will come alongside us in time of great need. It is translated as advocate because it speaks of not only Christ coming alongside to help fight our sin in this life, but also fight, defend our case in the heavenly courts. Jesus lends his voice in our defense. He is the one that speaks on our behalf. I don't know if there are any lawyers in here, but I've heard and read that sometimes lawyers, especially people that are new, will try to have a, what they call a higher win rate. Uh, what they would usually do is they'll take really easy cases. They will choose the ones that are like, oh, did this person uh, run over someone? It's obvious that he did. I will take that case. Or did this person do something illegal? He did. Okay, I will take that case. And the reason why they do that is so they could have this record showing that they have, uh, you know, they have a high win rate so that uh, over time people might be impressed by them and they might ask them to do higher ca- profile cases that get paid more. However, whenever a lawyer truly gets a higher profile play- case, uh, they... Uh, their, their, test, uh, their, their knowledge of law is truly tested, and their ability to sway is, uh, the jury is often tested. And oftentimes, people with these win rates, with these high win rates in the beginning, it begins to drop when they get into these difficult cases. You know, they're, they haven't trained enough. They're, they became soft. They chose all the easy cases. So when the hard cases come, then they're like, okay, I can't handle this, and their, their win rates begin to drop. This isn't so when it comes to our Savior. Jesus Christ takes up every single case. Every single time we sin, no matter how small or great it is, he takes it all up. No matter how, how severe our sin is, Christ wins 100% of the time. He has a perfect win rate. He speaks to God on our, beca- on our behalf. He is the perfect defense attorney and would argue our case before a judge. The, the implication is that there is someone that Jesus needs to defend us against. And who is that? Well, it's the devil. The devil is known as the accuser. This means that the job of the devil is intended to figure out a way to condemn us. Revelation 12, verse 10 speaks of the devil as an accuser. This is the same attribute that we see in Zechariah 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. But how does the devil accuse us? And why would he do it? We'll go with the how. In two ways, one, he, he tr- one is to us and the other to the Lord. To us, the devil tries to rob us of the joy of salvation. The devil attempts to make you dwell on your sins so that you can give up fighting sin and continue to live a life of sin. 
the others to the Lord. The devil will attempt to make a case against you so that you will not make it to heaven. The reality is that the devil can't win because the violation is paid for by Christ, the perfect, righteous one. And, the, and because of that, the Lord drops the case. Now, why would the devil still accuse us knowing this, knowing that Christ is our advocate and that he paid for our sins? This is me speaking. I believe the devil is so prideful that he actually thinks that he can break the promises of Scripture. And over and Scripture, over and over, you have to wonder why does the devil keep doing what he does? Why does he still try to uh, make all these plans and all these things against God? Because he actually believes that he can win. But every time he does, he know he gets defeated because Christ is our advocate. He is our advocate. Notice that he is known as the righteous. Jesus is the righteous. In the context of a court, the judge is not, the judge is not supposed to be related to the lawyer in, in, in any case because it's out of fear of corruption. But Jesus is righteous in that he does not use his relationship with the Father to pervert God's holy standard. In fact, Jesus the righteous is a blessing for those who are believers because he won't budge when it comes to holiness. It is a horrifying thing to non-believers for that exact same reason. When we fall into sin, there is to be no fear in going to Jesus. Yes, naturally, when we fall into sin, there is guilt and shame. But we know that Jesus paid it all. Jesus wants us to come to him without fear because he's our advocate. He has died on our behalf. It's because Christ died and exchanged our filthy rags for his righteous robe. We can stand perfectly and blameless before the Father. No matter how much the devil attempts to accuse us, Jesus will always be our advocate and he will always win. Luther describes it this way. After, the, after sin, the devil always alarms a heart and makes us tremble, for he hurls a person into sin in order that he may finally force them into despair. On the other hand, he lets some live smugly without temptation in order that they may think and believe they are holy. This is his cunning. He wants to make saints sinners and confident sinners saints. There is no fear when we fall into sin because the moment that we believed in Christ Christ died for all of our sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. There is no sin that is left uncovered. There is no sin that is hidden in the eyes of God. We have this great confidence that we have him, that all of our sin is paid for. We are made perfect in Christ. This should drive us to aspire to live holy lives and to love him more. Look at verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is unique in the New Testament. It's actually only used twice, and both of them are in this book. This word means to appease the wrath of God. And, and I, I use the word propitiation, but the Christian Standard Bible actually uses the word atoning sacrifice. Personally, I prefer the word propitiation because it's just... I think it captures this idea more of how God had to absorb the punishment for us. Jesus is able to be our advocate and forgive our sin because he came, he came into the world and became a sacrifice for us. Now, we don't usually use the word propitiation, but this word, if you Google it, it means to absorb something. It means to absorb some sort of wrath or a blow. When I was in college, toward the end of college and beginning of seminary, I used to do Muay Thai. 
And often Duncan Wallace makes fun of because muy in Spanish means little. It's like, why are you doing little tie? It's like, no, that's not what that word is. That's Spanish, man. It's a different language here. Um, but one day, what we do in these Muay Thai classes is that they will teach you a move. They'll teach you, like, okay, how do you punch someone or how do you, like, kick someone or you do this grapple or whatever. And then afterwards, they let you try it on one of them. You get to spar. And I remember this one time uh, I, I went to the... Uh, and for some reason, this is a beginner's class, there was like a pro fighter there. Like, you see him in front of the door when you get in the poster, like, light heavyweight championship out this Saturday, fight club kind of thing. Like, he was on the poster, and he's in the room, and I'm, he was my sparring partner. And they said, okay, when you spar with one another, only go 20%, because they know that when you're going 20%, the adrenaline kicks in, you'll actually go 40%. But if you're fighting a pro guy, 20%, feels like 400%. This guy, again, was a pro, and for some reason, I don't know why he was there, I think he was warming up, but he was like trying all these moves that I have never seen before, and then he was like throwing these blows, and I, at one point, I was like, okay, this is it, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna enter into glory. He did this like one throw, and my instructor saw me like struggling, like he was just hitting me, and I was like, I can't, okay, I don't even know what's going on here, I want my money back, I'm gonna see Jesus soon, I need to start writing a will, all this stuff. That, all that was running in my mind. But he was going to throw this, like, right hook or something. And the instructor came in and blocked it. He absorbed the hit. You can say in that moment that he propitiated my death. He absorbed <laughs> the punch that was meant for me. And we understand in a theological sense that this is exactly what Christ has done. And again, all illustrations fail and break apart at some point. But God is God, he's a God of love, he's also God that is holy. This picture of the cross, you understand that the propitiation for our sin demonstrates God's love and holiness at the same time. Before we came to saving faith, we were an enemy of God. God demands justice for our sin. We were a stench before him because of our wickedness, because of our hatred, because of our our distaste for the Lord, God was willing, was going to point his, he pointed his wrath towards us. He was going to unleash his wrath, but instead, he sent himself in the form of the Son. He, came, he went before us and, and bore the entire wrath on our behalf so that we can stand here today perfect and righteous before the Lord. He absorbed it on our behalf. He gave up his life so that we have new birth. The propitiation for those who place their trust in Christ is evidence that you truly have accepted this is that Christ means everything to you. If you have experienced a new birth and your heart is alive, then Christ is the most precious thing in all of existence. How much are you willing to give up for Christ? You cling to Christ because you realize that he gave up everything for you. This is how we become alive in light of the gospel. If God's word is truly indwelling in you, in you, you'll be walking in the light. You'll be confessing your sins, and you will always be dwelling on the advocate. You'll always remember what Christ has done on your, on your behalf. Because of your own sin, you're unable to work your way into heaven. But our Savior lived that perfect life for us. He took the wrath that you and I deserve. He atoned for our sins so that when, when God looks at us, he no longer sees the wickedness. He no longer sees our wretchedness. He sees perfection. He sees that we're no longer in sin anymore, that we are righteous before his eyes. 
that wrath that was meant for us was placed on to his own son. If we looked at all these three attributes, walking in the light, confessing our sins, and dwelling on the advocate, if these things are things that you dwell on and you think about them every single day, your relationship with God will be a vibrant one. Every time you walk closely with God, you begin to know him more intimately, and that should make you distinct from the world. Yet we understand the moment we fall into sin, we confess our sin and we, because we realize that that sin has a tremendous cost. Sin caused a rift in our relationship with Christ, and God gives us grace to see our sins and to, be, and to receive new life. And like when we fall into sin, we have to remember that we have an advocate in heaven. We have the advocate in Jesus Christ who will always stand for our father, before our Father saying, this person deserves heaven because of what I have done on their behalf. And when we think deeply about these truths about Christ, we will, be, we will begin to see that our relationship with the Lord is not just a mere transaction, but it's far more richer and deeper. A fellowship with the incarnate word that dwells also within us. <clears throat> if you truly have this right relationship with the Lord, you'll dwell on these truths. Like I said earlier, your, your relationship with Christ is not just simply just a transaction. There's so much more than that. And as we keep going through this book, as we keep going through any time, any time you study scripture, you need to have a greater knowledge of who he is. You need to see and you ask the Lord for grace to see how, he, how his word plays out in your life. Because the moment you see that, you'll cherish those moments. You'll love him more. And that's how you draw closely with the Lord. And that's how you walk in obedience with him. The more you cherish him, the more you love him, the more you walk in obedience with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your, your son, how he came into the world, absorbing the wrath for us. We're so thankful that he's, not, he's more than just someone that atoned for us, but he's also our advocate. He's also the light that we look to him as the shining example of what we need to live, how we're supposed to live. And we're so thankful that he's also the advocate, Lord, the one that's always standing in our place, always the one that's to fight for our case. And he always wins no matter what. And we're thankful that he is the, 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 the living sacrifice for our sins so that we can be made right with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son and may this truth of your word impact our life so that we can live a life that is saturated with love, love for you and love for others. Lord, may it always be that way, that every time we study your word, that it moves us so that we can live faithfully to you. Thank you for this time. Be with us in our discussion time. May it be edifying to all of us. Pray these things your son's name. Amen.